Okay, friends, this morning our word for the day is the word shalom. Shalom. It's not an English word, it's a Hebrew word, but my guess is lots of you have probably heard it before. Shalom. Uh, Maybe you've heard it on television or in the movies. You've heard it whenever a Jewish person meets another Jewish person uh, or says goodbye to someone else. They often say shalom. That's because it's a traditional Jewish greeting. And perhaps some of you are also aware that it is a greeting because the basic meaning of the word is peace. So to say shalom to someone, it's basically to say, peace be with you. But if that's how the word is used nowadays, it actually does not do do justice to the way the word is used in the Old Testament. Because in, in the Old Testament, shalom has a much deeper meaning than simply peace. It has a much richer, it has a much fuller meaning than simply the absence of hostility. Uh, For example, you can have peace between you and your neighbour, your next-door neighbour. You can have peace with them by virtue of having a a massive, high, sound-insulated fence between your house and their house. And so you can have peace with them because you basically have nothing to do with them. Uh, You never see them, you never hear them. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? And so you're at peace with your neighbours basically because you just never bump into them. That is not shalom. To have shalom between you and your neighbour is to basically have no fence at all. To have shalom is to be so at peace and so at ease with your neighbour, so relaxed with your neighbour, so at home with your neighbour, that you actually just simply both come and go into each other's homes in complete comfort. You get on so well that uh, you never are an inconvenience to them, they are never an inconvenience to you. Uh, you don't irritate them, they don't irritate you. That, that's shalom. It's just to be content. It's to be secure. It's to be in friendship. It's to be in tranquility. It's to have wholeness. It's to have fullness. It's to be calm. It's to be complete. It's it's just to be content. That's shalom. It's very rich. And that's good to know this morning because you may not have noticed it since our Bibles are in English, but that word makes an appearance in this morning's passage. And it appears in this morning's passage in such a way as to flood your life, to flood my life, with the most wonderful truth about what God is like and about what he has in store for us. Before we get to that, before we see where the word appears in the passage though, we need to take stock a little bit, set the scene, by noticing up front that this chapter is effectively, it's a letter. It's a letter written from Jeremiah to the exiles who are living in Babylon. Probably got that from the very first verse, didn't you? Verse 1, this is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests and the prophets and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Please notice the obvious fact from that verse. Jeremiah is writing to people who have already been carried into exile to Babylon. In other words, this chapter has jumped us forward in time very quickly from most of the events that we looked at last week. If you were here last week, hopefully you remember, especially in chapter 26, God was simply, punish, uh, so God was simply threatening to punish Israel with the exile. Just like a school, a disobedient student might be threatened to be kicked out of the classroom, God was threatening to kick a disobedient Israel out of the promised land. But Back last week, it was all just threats. Here in this chapter, what has happened is that we have jumped ahead in time to when all those warnings from God have, in fact, come true. Now, you see, that's one of the things about the book of Jeremiah. 
That's what makes it a little bit confusing at times. It, it jumps forwards and backwards in time like that all the time. Sometimes in the book you can jump 10 years, you can jump 20 years in a single verse. And that's because Jeremiah is not so much interested in giving us a nice, neat, chronological, even order of all the things that happen. He actually simply wants us to understand some stuff about God. And often, so as to emphasize the stuff about God that he wants us to see, he will move us around in time and he will compress time so as to draw attention to the aspect of God that he wants to emphasize. That's what's happening in this chapter. As we'll see in a few moments, there's something really, really important about God that Jeremiah wants us to see. And so here in this chapter, we have jumped forward in time to when all the warnings that we heard about last week, all the warnings have now come true. Just as God warned, Babylon has swept down from the north. Just as God warned, they have overrun Israel. Just as God warned, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon has taken back to Babylon hundreds of prisoners of war. Hundreds of exiles have been uprooted and removed from the promised land. Here's the thing, though. Jeremiah himself is not one of the exiles. Uh, he was allowed to stay in, Jer in Jerusalem. So in this chapter, what you've got is Jeremiah sitting amongst the sort of the ruins of war-torn Jerusalem, and he's writing a letter to those people who have been taken away as exiles. He's writing a letter to, the, to, to people who have been carried away. Now, why is he writing? Well, it's because, as we saw last week, there's lots of false prophets who are popping up around the place saying that this exiles thing that's happening is not a punishment from God at all, and so Israel should resist it. They should fight against it. Uh, the exiles who have been carried off, they should rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. They should start a guerrilla warfare in, in, in Babylon. They should start a resistance movement to make life hard for King Nebuchadnezzar, make him wish he'd never picked on Israel. In this morning's chapter, in verse 8, Jeremiah talks about prophets and diviners trying to deceive the people. And if we were to keep reading past verse 14, we'd discover that Jeremiah would actually start naming names of uh, false prophets who are telling the people to ignore Jeremiah and to exist King Nebuchadnezzar. And that's why he's writing here. He wants to counteract these, these false prophets who are telling the exiles to resist Babylon. And in this letter, Jeremiah contradicts them by saying a very radical thing to the exiles. Look at what he says in verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Five wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Don't decrease. Also, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prof prospers, you too will prosper. Now, friends, that is a very radical thing to say. You did hear him, didn't you? Settle down, seek the good of Babylon. If it prospers, you will prosper. That is a radical thing to say. That is almost the same as saying to a British POW in World War II, it's almost the same as saying to them, look, settle down and work for the benefit of the Nazis who have captured you. It's almost the same as that, but not exactly the same as it. There's a very big difference. Because remember, this exile has been very explicitly and, and uh, clearly described as a judgment from no less than God himself. 
The exile was God's punishment on Israel for rebelling against him. So did you notice in those verses I just read the stress that all this, the stress that's on all this being God's doing? Verse 4, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile. Verse 7, seek the peace of the city to which I have carried you into exile. The exile wasn't the result of Nebuchadnezzar's power. Uh, It wasn't the result of Babylon's might. It is nothing less than the very explicit, the very predicted work of Yahweh himself. And therefore, you see, that's why Israel shouldn't resist it. That's why they shouldn't fight against it. That's why they should accept it. That's why they should acquiesce to it. That's why they should simply settle down and learn their lesson and get on with the lives as best they can, living with the punishment that they brought on themselves. It's a bit like a parent telling a disobedient child not to complain about being punished. Don't fight against the discipline. It's only going to make stuff worse. It is nevertheless extraordinary advice. But he actually goes on to say something even more extraordinary about God. Verse 10. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Now, friends, in the NIV, which a lot of us have, at verse 11, where God says that he has plans to prosper you, the phrase is, in fact, I have plans for shalom for you. And you see, suddenly that word of the day, shalom, suddenly that word fills verse 11 with extraordinary richness and meaning. For here are the exiles sitting in a foreign land, weeping for their beloved Jerusalem, weeping for their promised land, and their minds would have been in turmoil, perhaps wondering what on earth is going on here. How did it ever come to this? What's going to happen now? And God is effectively saying to them, look, this is my discipline, so you do need to accept it. But when the time's right, when the discipline's over, I have plans to give you shalom. I have plans to end the chaos. I have plans to give you fullness and security and contentment and tranquility. I have plans to give you wholeness and fullness. I have plans for you to want for nothing. And that deliberate word choice of shalom with its with just that depth of meaning and the rich comfort, that word lifts the verse off the page and it shouts to us in the loudest possible terms about the goodness of God. There is nothing skimpy here. There's nothing begrudging about God's plans and desires for his people. His intention for his people is nothing short of inexhaustible goodness. Shalom. And suddenly it makes sense. That's why, after all those warnings and commands last week, that's why Jeremiah has jumped us forward in time so quickly to when the warnings have come true. And Jeremiah is now writing off this letter. He has deliberately compressed time for us so as to get to this letter as quickly as possible so that we don't misunderstand the heart of God. He has compressed time so that we get to this letter as quickly as possible because 
Jeremiah doesn't want us to think that with all this talk of judgment and, and punishment and warnings, he doesn't want us to come to the wrong conclusion about what God is like. He doesn't want us to think that God is somehow malicious and enjoys beating up on people and punishing them. And so what he's done is he's rushed us ahead in time to chapter 29, to this letter to the exiles, so that we can make sure we actually see what God's primary plans are for his people. Because God's main agenda isn't to hand down judgment. God's main agenda isn't to punish people. God's main agenda, what he's really on about, is wanting to give life. Wanting to give life to the full. Wanting to give shalom. Uh, We have a friend who's in her 50s now, but who can still remember how often when she was a little girl, when she'd been really naughty and she'd pushed things way too far, uh, her father would give her a smack, send her to her room to think over things. I know that's all very politically incorrect nowadays. But our friend recalls how more often than not, after she'd been smacked and she was sitting in a room thinking over things, she often recalls how she could hear her dad crying in the room next door because he had to discipline his daughter. He was prepared to do it for her sake so that she'd learn, but it just broke his heart to have to do it. That's God and the exile. Yes, he's behind it. Uh, yes, they need to, they need to uh, accept it and not resist it because of that. But God, God's not enjoying this. And so it's almost as if when God, after God has finally handed down the punishment, after years and years and years of Israel just not, uh, not obeying him and ignoring all the warnings, after the punishment has finally had... Uh, come down, it's almost as if God now can't contain himself and so he rushes ahead to start talking about how good it's going to be after the punishment. He rushes ahead to want to, want to tell them about all his plans for, for shalom for his people. All the good stuff to come. And in fact, that's what's going to happen uh, in the book of Jeremiah. At this point, uh, the book is going to take us on a sudden shift in direction. Because we have had uh, chapter after chapter after chapter of warnings and predictions of punishment if Israel don't change. But what happens now is suddenly we are going to get chapter upon chapter upon chapter of hope and blessings and promises. And as we'll see over the next few weeks, we're going to see some of the most wonderful promises in the entire Bible come out of the book of Jeremiah. And it's all because, you see, God is actually really slow to want to have to punish people because his main agenda, what he really wants to do, is show love, show mercy, to give shalom. Let me show you this again very, very quickly from another closely related passage in the Old Testament. I'm going to try and be really fast with this. But turn with me to Daniel chapter 9. It's, it's a few pages to the right in your Bible. Start going to the right, you'll get to Lamentations, keep going, you'll get to Ezekiel, and then you'll get to Daniel. Daniel, you'll see, is one of the people who have been taken into exile in Babylon. Daniel chapter 9. Jeremiah wasn't, remember, he stayed put in Jerusalem. Daniel, however, he did go into exile. And what happens in Daniel chapter 9 is that you get this lovely flip side 
to Jeremiah 29. Because whereas in that chapter we just heard about Jeremiah writing this letter to the exiles in Babylon, in Daniel chapter 9, we actually see what happens when Daniel, who is an exile, when he gets the letter. Chapter 9, Daniel, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. Now, friends, do you see what's happening there? The the letter that we've just been looking at in Jeremiah 29, well, the postie has just delivered it to Daniel in Babylon. In fact, more than that, it must have been Australia Post because uh, it's taken about 70 years for the letter to get there which means that the exile, by the time Daniel gets the letter, the exile is actually about to finish. Because in the letter, Jeremiah, or God through Jeremiah, said that it was going to go for about 70 years. So here's Daniel reading this letter, effectively saying that it's about to be all over, and so prompted by that, in anticipation, he goes to prayer. It's a great prayer. He admits his sin, he admits the sin of Israel, says they deserve it. Look what happens in verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to you, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, An answer was given, which I have come to tell you. And Gabriel's going to go on and detail God's plans to bring forgiveness for his people. There's a whole heap of stuff we could say about this. What I want you to notice is God's eagerness to forgive. Before Daniel even had the chance to finish his prayer, the answer is on its way. God is that keen to respond when people confess their sin. He is that keen to embrace them when people ask for forgiveness. God almost can't contain himself. And as soon as he started praying, God jumps in and responds. That's not often how people picture God. Often, especially in the Old Testament, people have this picture of God as a harsh old man who who sort of only begrudgingly gives out good stuff and is actually really, really sort of looking for excuses to give us a hard time. That is a terrible lie about God. That is a lie straight from Satan himself. It is so dishonouring to God to picture him like that. The Psalms describe God as pursuing us with righteousness. It's a picture of us being pursued down the highway by the police with flashing lights and a blaring symbol trying to pull us over, not to punish us, but to give us good stuff and to bless us. The Bible says God is slow to anger, but his love has a hair trigger. And even before Daniel finishes praying, God has rifled back an answer. And in Jeremiah, as soon as the punishment has finally fallen, God rushes ahead and he wants to start to talk to them about the future plans he's got for after the punishment. Times, plans for good times, plans for blessing, plans for shalom. And friends, that ought to thrill us. What we are seeing of God here, 
For these are plans of God which point us straight to Jesus. For God is in fact so keen to love you. He is so keen to forgive you. He is so dedicated to bringing you shalom that he did not even withhold his only son. And so at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, for people like us. So that when, like Daniel, we confess our sin, God is there in a flesh with his arm around you, ushering you into his kingdom, reserving a place for you in a new creation in which shalom will be ushered in in all its fullness. And Jeremiah 29 is showing us that it's all being driven by a God who is slow to punish and really quick to love. A God whose holiness demands that Israel's sin be punished, sure. But as soon as it is punished, God can't help himself to start talking to them about the good stuff he's got planned for them after the punishment. That is our God. Slow to anger. Quick to forgive. And that is very, that is very comforting and that is very motivating. Uh, it's actually sort of the other side of the coin to what we heard last week about uh, God speaking and us having to obey him. Last week we thought about obeying God simply because of the fact that he's God. I mean, his power, his authority, it demands that we obey him. He's God. But as true as all that is, this morning we're also seeing that, well, gosh, surely we'd want to obey him, wouldn't we? Because he's just so good. His plan for you is nothing less than, than shalom. Why would we not do what he tells us to at times? When God tells us to seek first his kingdom, when God tells us to be all things to all men so that we might win some, when God tells us to, to serve others rather than wait around for others to serve us, he's not telling us those things so as to make his life any easier. He's actually telling us those things because it's best for us. Because we follow a God who's slow to anger and really quick to love. We follow a God whose holiness may have demanded that Israel's sin be punished by exile, but as soon as it is punished, he can't help himself from starting to describe the good stuff that he's got planned for them. We follow a God who, before Daniel is even finished asking for forgiveness, he's fired back a reply about how he's already planned history so as to bring forgiveness. We follow a God who, even when you were a long way off, he runs to meet you. We follow a God who was prepared for his one and only son to die alone in the dark so you and I could be part of his family. I don't know how much you reckon God loves you. I can guarantee he loves you more. He is not out to get you. He's actually out to give to you. Why on earth would we ever not do what he says? I'll pray. Father, we're really sorry for the times that we just underestimate how good you are. Father, thank you for your plans for shalom for us. Thank you that 
your son came, died on the cross in our place so that we could be here this morning as yours, your children, your family. And that we look forward to a time when we will be blessed with shalom in all its fullness. And everything that confuses us and hurts us now will be gone. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for reminding us of it this morning. I